from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. A few weeks ago, as you probably heard, something extraordinary happened at a Sotheby's art auction. It happened when a work by the anonymous, mysterious British artist Banksy went up for sale. What happened was the piece was in a big artist frame, and we were told we couldn't take off the frame, that the frame was part of the work, which happens quite a bit, where, like, the frame is actually part of the, you know, infrastructure or institutional overlay the artist wants to give the work of art for you to understand a certain way. That's Amy Capalazzo, who chairs the Fine Arts Division at Sotheby's. She is based in New York, but was in London for that auction. Last chance. And selling for 860 but it turns out it had a paper shredder in it, and the canvas, the image on the front, sort of slid down once a remote was triggered, and it came down and sort of shredded and half shredded. People are laughing and joking and looking around, turning like something happened or something fell down. Everybody didn't believe that it was real, and that was the great thing, that we came out thinking it's a joke. So this new piece of art that somebody just bought for $1.4 million was vandalized by the artist, just short of destroyed by the artist. Think about that. If somebody won a bid on a yacht, but before he could sail it away, the thing was deliberately sunk, that sale would be null and void. But this Banksy prank is art. And shredding half the painting probably made it worth more. We had numerous, like too numerous to count, requests to buy the work because it was like part of our history. Of course, we, the buyer who bought it, had the first choice to buy it. And of course, that buyer did go through with the sale because now she or he had dibs on an historic and special piece of contemporary art. But the episode prompted the rest of us to have a big think about what words like value even mean when it comes to art nowadays. As luck would have it, there is a very good new documentary on HBO that grapples with this very question. The Price of Everything, it's called, and it goes inside both the creative and financially speculative zones of the art world. Amy Capalazzo figures prominently in the film. And when Amy and the director of The Price of Everything, Nathaniel Kahn, joined me in the studio the other day, Nathaniel also had the Banksy shredding stunt on his mind. It's definitely a comment on, I mean, I think as, as always, his art so often is mm-hmm. commentary on where we are as, as a culture and um, that he can shred part of the painting and it still, no. in fact, not only retains value, becomes more valuable. Yep. This is very much something that, that we wanted to look at in the film, which is, you know, the the... The question of how we value things yes. and, and why we value things and that ultimately art is, in the end, it holds a mirror up to who we are as a culture right now and that we are in a world in which everything is for sale. So, Nathaniel, uh, explain what the price of everything is and is about. 
The movie is about the contemporary art world, and it's about the complex relationship between art and money. That's been a fraught relationship since the very beginning of time, and now at this moment, it is perhaps more fraught and certainly more exciting than it's ever been before. Uh, your, your, your documentary that brought you to my attention and to the world's attention, my architect, about your father, um, the great architect Louis Kahn, was there, uh, was there a thing, a moment, a eureka, aha moment that said, oh, I want to do this film? Well, I've, you know, I grew up in a family of artists, so I always saw the relationship between art and money. That's always been something that I, I've uh, sort of experienced firsthand in the difficulties of that. So I always sort of, my sense is coming from the end of, of the artist. But then seeing in the last few years the way art has, you know, really grabbed the headlines, partly for its it's uh, sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's the run-up of prices yes. in the art world. You lo- listeners, he looked at Amy as he's talked about uh, the run-up well, of prices. I, of course, because she's, you know, an incredible uh, person and also an incredible person in this film. Amy, so when Nathaniel Kahn comes to you and says, I'm making this uh, movie, did you think, Amy, that, oh, I get it, you're going to cast <laughs> me as the villain of this piece? I just sort of thought, look, a lot of things get made about the art world that go into sort of the dustbin of the art world's own narcissistic, self-reflective story. So I was like, you know, I'm sure I'll, you know, I had no idea what that meant. It could have been a two-second cameo or something, no right. idea. So I said, you know, principally, okay. And I wasn't so keen on it at the moment it came to pass. And then when I heard Nathaniel was going to be the director, I loved the movie My Architect. So I thought, okay, this is a quality practitioner here. We should be in pretty safe hands. Uh, So I said yes. And then I didn't, they came to film me one day and I don't, I I mean, I just am like doing my job in the movie. It's not particularly. But that's the exciting thing for us. I mean, as a filmmaker, that was the thrilling part. You know, death for me is having to do an interview. I, I can't stand interviews because you know, you lock somebody in there, and it's, it's, it's one thing to talk the way we're talking now. But with a film crew here, and you have lights, and you kind of put somebody on a marker in a chair, suddenly everything's dead. It's why we call them talking heads. Exactly, talking heads. Um, you know, great band, but not great necessarily <laughs> for, for uh, you know, for, for, making, for making really a film that gets in deeply into something. Yeah. So for me, the cinema verite part of it is what I love. Really being able to observe somebody, be with somebody right. when they're doing what they do. So this will be the catalog for the Ames collection. Did you land that deal? Yeah, Stephen and Ann Ames. We don't get things of this caliber very often, so that makes it special. There's also a lot at stake. You happen to be this incredible room downstairs, you know, sort of in the back, the, the back part of, of, the, of the auction house where all the art is kind of around. And suddenly we're sort of in this, in this warehouse, storehouse of art, talking about art, putting together this catalog, and it's a, it's a part of the world. I know it's every day for you, but for most of us to see how an auction is put together is completely fascinating. Okay, so this is a really interesting picture. This, we just hit it. This is like a money shot. When you have the painting you're selling, and then a picture of the artist standing in front of the painting, <laughs> Bill de Kooning, winner. Holy grail of comps. Holy grail of comps. That's as good as it gets. And it collides these two worlds that we wanted to investigate, the world of art and commerce, is coming together, clashing together in this really remarkably visual way, which right. was thrilling. You, you interview a bunch of, of big-time uh, art people, uh, painters like Jeff Koons and uh, briefly Gerhard Richter and, and, and dealers and collectors uh, and critics. Um, so the ones who became the, the, the main characters of the film, mm. uh, I mean, I don't 
maybe they were all as instantly bedazzling as Amy Capalazzo, but but did that did that happen organically? We kind of realized fairly early that there were sort of three areas that we wanted to deal with. Of course, the making of art, the selling of art, and the buying of art, or you know, the collecting of art. But to find a collector like Stefan Edlis. Who's this 90-year-old Holocaust survivor and plastics mogul and big-time art collector? There's a lot of money kicking around, and there is a limit to where you can put it. To be an effective collector, deep down you have to be shallow. You have to be a decorator. You want the thing to work with the rugs, if you want it to work with the furniture. The moment I met him, I also knew, and of course Amy and Stefan knew each other, so suddenly this becomes something where this is a cast of characters, as in a great drama, who already have relationships. And if one is able to observe those relationships and bring them together somewhere later in the film, now the film begins to have a structure. Look at this one, Steph. This is a good little picture. Red is always good. So the early rules, red is better than brown. Brown pictures are unsaleable. And don't buy any pictures with fish. Brown is hard. Green is not always great. This is de Kooning in front of the painting I'm selling. Oh. You don't have to be an art collector to be able to buy de Kooning. You look at this, listen to her, and pretty soon you know, okay, that's something I can buy. Whether you need it or like it, it's a good investment. Well, and he, he, he both obviously is acutely aware of the price of everything he's ever owned or owns now and how he did financially, but he clearly cares about the work as well. Is that combination uh, uncommon in the breed? So I really hate it, or I, I hate it's too strong, I don't care, but when people think that somehow because I know the value of works of art, or in this case we're talking about Stefan who was very acutely aware of the value of the trading value of things, that it somehow alters or corrupts your other relationship to it. To know the value of a work of art or to know its commercial value at a given moment doesn't necessarily change or corrupt your love, affection, like or dislike for an object. It's really just another way to know something. I, I still resist that. I but mean, that's it, a, but there's a value judgment inherent in your comment of like, do, do all these people, like, do they really love no, the art no, or they that, just know the value? Yes, yeah. there is a value judgment because I've met a lot of art collectors and, and, and see some of them other than Stefan depicted in Nathaniel's film who, you know, are, aren't as... Uh, sincerely uh, delighted by owning works of art. So this gets into a very fundamental thing. Like I, I always feel that it is morally wrong to judge how someone loves something because it's kind of none of my business and I'm not really, I mean, you know, maybe we should tell them to like, I don't know, their children better or something. Like it's, it's, not, it's not my job or my place to comment how someone loves something. No, it's mine. Okay, right, exactly. So you might editorialize that, but I feel a little bit like, if, you mean, if you don't express your love in the way that I express my love, yeah. you must not have love. Yeah, no, I agree. So I don't I really you. like that side of things, and I try not to get into the morality of that because I think it's a dead-end street. Right. And I think it's kind of um, liberal posturing in a certain way. So, so uh, Nathaniel, you do a bit of history giving context yeah. for people about, oh, there was this famous sale in the 70s where suddenly, wow, everybody woke up and contemporary yes. art was worth that, 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 that new paradigm continued and blew up more in the 80s, and here we are, right? Well, I think, I think the way Amy states it, though, in the film is probably more accurate, which is there was a key moment, which was the skull sale. It, it, you know, it surely wasn't the first time. 1973. 1973. Right. And, you know, when Robert Skull, the, the taxi fleet owner who had a, a piece of a gallery called the Green Gallery, and he knew the artist directly, he'd bought directly from the artists, 
And uh, the artists thought he loved them. I mean, right? Artists want to be loved, right? And, you know, and they want their piece to communicate to you. So if you buy something from an artist, especially if you're saying, hey, can you give me a deal? The artist somehow thinks, oh, he really... You've adopted you know, my she, child. He or she really loves this piece. That's they right. want to live with it. Yeah. So the artist, you know, shares their pieces with Robert Skull. And then several years later, Robert Skull turns around and does a an auction of 50 pieces. And we, we luckily, there's incredible footage of this sale. Record numbers of art dealers, collectors, and connoisseurs filed into the Park Burnett Gallery for what was billed as the most important auction of post-World War II American art. 50 works um, by mostly living artists, contemporary artists, sold at auction at then Park Burnett, now Sotheby's, um, and brought in, what was it, two two point three million dollars, something like this, which at what that... was an enormous <laughs> amount of Enormous then. amount of money for living artists. So then there's that seminal moment, that key moment, that awkward embrace, that awkward embrace between Robert Rauschenberg... He looks he, like he's ready to throw Skull a punch, really. he, Well, he does. Mm-hmm. He does. And he does, in fact, throw Skull a... a, oh, he's a certainly, kind of... Kind a, of a, he hits him on the jab, shoulder. a little jab, yeah. Says, Christ said, you need to send me flowers. Send you flowers? Nothing for happened. Something. Where? For what? Yeah, I should have anyway. There's a great markup. So he bought something for maybe $600, and he'd sold it for, you know, 85000 suddenly at auction, and Rauschenberg felt ripped off, okay, and cheated. But there's an emotional cheating there. And then, but then Skull says, How about yours that you're going to sell now? I've been working for you, too. We work for each other. So what Skull was saying there back in the 70s is that by selling high, he's driving up the prices of, of new work that Rauschenberg and other big artists uh would make and sell going forward. And there's this awkward hug. Okay, this awkward hug for me is the core of this movie. It's this awkward embrace between art and money. Why is it we have this problem with the relationship between art and money? It's an interesting, it's not so simple. There is this sense we want the artist to be pure, and the artist actually needs to be pure in the sense that the moment they start thinking about the market and will something sell or won't it sell, they're screwed. It's over. If that's what you're thinking about, instead of some channeling your inner, you know, your inner muse, you're screwed. So anyway, so that awkward embrace really is something that we that we look at from lots of different angles in this film. I sort of remember that nearly every scene you shot somehow ended up of me ended up somehow in the film. But I did remember yeah. one scene that I thought, oh, curious omission. So we're in the back storeroom uh, going through the catalog and the proof and the works of art are all behind us. It's our like storage vault for works of art. And I walk over at one point and I look at something that might be worth $5,000 on a great day. And I talk about the virtue of it and why I love this kind of piece so much. You remember that scene? Uh, I blocked it out. Oh, you did? Okay. So it was more convenient for me to be a different kind of character. In I film. know. What, what was the piece? Do you uh, remember? Yeah, I do remember. And I'll... You won't say. You know, I talk about why I love this object and why this artist, what this artist's merits are to me in lots of ways. But it's, it's an object that isn't worth very much at all. Sure. But the idealistic, art-loving you was not, in that instance, was not included in the film. That was well, actually, included. okay, so, but, but here's something about filmmaking. It was very clear to me that I did absolutely need to represent that aspect of you, which is how much you love art. Yes, I, I, I don't I, feel cheated, don't no, get me no, wrong. No, no, right? but, but, but we had to have a moment, because, because that is part of you, and it would be completely inaccurate to represent it otherwise. So, but that moment couldn't happen then. It had to happen later. right. And the moment also was much, much stronger with you in the back of the car. What was the first piece that you fell in love with? Like, 
beyond something I made as a child that I loved or, you know, like something that was real art yeah. in that way. She saw yeah. My hometown museum has this Giacomo Bala painting that's very famous. And it's a dog, a little kind of like long-haired dachshund, like wagging its tail and like its feet are going and a woman's dress is moving and it's that movement, that very futurist movement of Bala. It's a famous picture. Masterpiece, loved that. But this is when you were a kid. Right. Before you knew anything about the market or anything else, you loved art. Right. So that becomes such an interesting story because now it's you going to a museum, you having access to this thing as a, as a kid. Well, right? I would just like to say I'd like to dispel the myth that the people who work all day in the trading end of the marketplace don't love the product because if we were all really just attracted to trading, I suppose we would have gone to Wall Street. But right, really, of, no, of course. Everybody who came into the art world, everybody who came into the gallery system or the auction house system came for the love of art. And so you never leave that. I mean, believe me, it's what gets you out of bed on bad days, just like you love but writing. But this is so important because you use the word love. In the, I mean, that is what interests me in this film. That everyone in this film loves art. There's no question. They love it in different ways. And I'm, not here to, I'm also not here to judge love. And love can happen any way. That, any way that love happens is a good thing. That's, I that's how I see it. Right. But, I do, but I do also see that um, I do think that, that some of the marketplace is not about love. It's more about money. And I do see that we're but, using, we've used words like value. Uh-huh. And we've, we're, you know, we, we've, we've corrupted words like value and, and luxury and uh, um, to be monetary. I mean, va- when, when we use the word value, we should be using the word price. Right. Value is something that's much, much broader. The, there, mm-hmm. Art does have an intrinsic value. Worthy. It means worthy. Well, yeah. something that has something... Yeah, excellent, excellent beyond its monetary right. value. Right. right. So, but something that lasts. Some, something, that, something that is, is ineffable. Something mm-hmm. that you actually can't possess. I've had this conversation a couple of times in my career with, very, ser- <laughs> with very serious collectors, this particular conversation, okay. where somebody bought something that was very valuable and maybe paid a world record prize or something that was like a little bit of a stretch in every way. Like it was, a, it was an astonishing moment for maybe the grandness of the moment or something. And, I, and it's a moment of great possession. Like you bought it, you won it, you're the winning bid, boom, hammer goes, it's yours, you want it. And a couple of times I've had conversations where I've said to people who seem to be Maybe maybe they love maybe the monetary side or the conquest side of having captured it is the part that's the most seductive at that moment. I I said, well, you know, you don't really own that piece. Like I know you're about to pay thirty two million six hundred and eighty one thousand dollars for it, but you don't really own it. You're kind of like just a custodian of it for a little while. And maybe you should look at it like being a foster parent. Like your job is to just take care of it for a while and take care of it well. And maybe you'll be morally judged based on how well you cared for it over you time. You said all this? Yeah, I say that to clients all the time. Good for you. Tough love. So, well, so it's you the do, truth. So you do, make, you, do, you do push people. I don't know if that's pushing people. I'm just reminding them, like, you just bought something that was 80 years old. And if you're really lucky, it will, it, you know, if you, if you care for it very well, it will outlive all of us and our children and our children's children and everybody after that. So, Nathaniel, uh, talk, talk about the title of your film, The Price of Everything. What, what do you mean by that? You know, the whole quote is from Oscar Wilde that a cynic is a person who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. So under that definition, we might say we live in a cynic, not a cynical, it's not an individual anymore. It's a cynical society that knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. I think one real key for us in making this film is we'd like to try to disconnect those two worlds. 
and those, and those two words. What kind of world do we want to live in? What do we really value? What is the meaning of value? What does price have to do with value? Those are things we have to look at as a society. Well, thank you, so, Nathaniel, because you have asked and answered my final question, which was exactly that. This is just what's happened to American society in the last 35, yeah. 40 years, where the market is all, and the, those other values that we still sometimes kind of, sort of, uh, pretend to care about have been a little overwhelmed and swamped. Yeah, well, as always, art reflects who we are at yeah. this moment, and ultimately the best art, the greatest art, will reflect our time for the future. And, you know, this movie... I, I was very conscious in making the movie that that this is not just speaking to people who already know all this stuff. For me, I hope that the film, and for all of us who made the film, we'd also sort of like to show a little bit of the playbook. This is kind of how the market works. And it's good to understand that. It's not It's not glorifying it. It's not judging it. But this is who we are right now. But one wants to throw this out to the artists out there. Artists give us hope. They speak for who we are right now. We we must not only support them, but we but we can't we can't undermine them also by creating a system that is demoralizing and that constantly says that well art is all about the money because it's not in the end it is not about wait, the wait, money. Wait, what's demoral wait, demoralizing like to make your work as a woman in the 1960s where there was absolutely no prospect whatsoever of financial compensation. And you still made your work. I mean, that there's nothing more demoralizing than that. Oh no, I agree with so you. So I no, would listen. say we're in the, we're in a golden age. It's like a as Schimmel says, there's not a golden age without gold. But there is actually the prospect that you could make it now more than ever before, and that's exciting. And it's exciting not just to, you know, I, I to it's exciting to everyone. And it's not just a certain select group of white male artists. I mean, I see many artists of color succeeding, sure. many women, many more opportunities. That doesn't mean everybody will get to the, the zenith on It high. is the best of times and the worst of times, as I like to say. Ah, that's all right. Well, um, well said. Well Amy, Amy Capalazzo and uh, Nathaniel Kahn, this has been such a great pleasure beyond my wildest expectations and hopes of what we could do here in discussing this subject. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Amy Capalazzo is chair of fine art at Sotheby's and Nathaniel Kahn's documentary, The Price of Everything, premieres on HBO on November 12th. It's funny that Nathaniel Kahn just said this about why he doesn't like typical sit-down documentary interviews. Talking Heads, you know, great band, but not great necessarily for, for uh, you know, for making really a film that gets in deeply into something. Funny because we've got an oral history coming up next about the making of Talking Heads' brilliant album from 1980, Remain in Light. How a great Talking Heads album is, yeah, the same as it ever was. That's next on Studio 360. In a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. That's President Donald Trump covering the Talking Heads song Once in a Lifetime. Okay, not covering it because that's actually a great mashup created on YouTube by someone called Swede Mason who used footage from the 1980 Talking Heads music video and superimposed Trump's head on David Byrne, who is dressed in a black suit and bow tie, gesticulating wildly in that David Byrne way. You may ask yourself, what is that beautiful house? You may ask yourself, where does that highway go 
And you may ask yourself, how is this arty rock song from almost four decades ago still so familiar that this mashup has three million views on YouTube? And you may ask yourself, what went into the album it was on, Remain in Light? It's a record that even for rabid Talking Heads fans, as I was then and remain, came as kind of a revelation. To tell the story of that album, we begin with two members of the band. My name is Chris France. I play drums with Talking Heads. My name is Tina Weymouth, and in the Talking Heads, I primarily played bass guitar. We'd come off a tour. The last show we did was in Germany in 1979, and we were really burnt out. Pretty exhausted, actually. We needed to replenish our batteries. After a few short weeks of catching our breath, we thought, well, it's time to start again. And we knew that David Byrne and Brian Eno were making a record. Called My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. There was some kind of stress going on there. The stress between the two of them. Brian left David in California to finish on his own. They were not speaking to each other. They wouldn't discuss it with us either. We were having trouble getting David's attention. David was having nightmares about having his head cut off and trying to glue it back on and juices oozing and seeping from where it had been cut off and being disturbed that no one else seemed to notice. So I interpreted that as what was going on between the two of them. We had a rehearsal loft in Long Island City where Tina and I happened to live. So Tina had a brilliant idea. She said, let's call up Eno and invite him over here to jam. Oh, Brian, why don't you just come over to our place and jam with us? Because we're jamming and we're having a great time doing it. He said, but I don't play any instrument. We said, that's cool. And so he came over. As soon as David heard that Eno was in our loft jamming and writing songs. David, why don't you come too? You know, it's really fun. We're having a good time. He said, oh, okay. And he he was was over over in a flash. flash and made some really cool little improvisations that we recorded on our little boombox. This is a little portable cassette player recorder. We did a few little experimental jam sessions, which were promising enough to us that we thought, oh, we can do this. We can go down to Nassau and just start from scratch in the studio. At that time, in 1980, this was very rarely done. It was done in experimental composition, but not in popular music. My name is Sietse Steenstra. I'm the author of Song and Circumstance, the work of David Byrne, From Talking Heads to the Present. Talking Heads had always been interested in approaching rock music a little differently. They were interested in abstract painting and in conceptual art. Brian Eno and David Byrne founded they share an interest in cybernetics as applied to art. The idea of cybernetics, in which both Byrne and Eno were interested, was that the manager is actually part of the entire structure of what goes on, not outside of it. So the song should not be outside of the recording process. As you know, I spend far too much of my life in recording studios, 
and have therefore been given to reflect for some time on what they do to music and the recording studio as a compositional tool. On Remain in Light, the production is very important because the album is put together out of many layers of tape, taking away old layers and adding new layers. Brian Eno contributed to that as much as the members of Talking Heads. As David said very humorously in one interview, we recorded the music before we wrote it. In the recording process, Talking Heads would begin with laying down a series of rhythm tracks. We would, all four members of the band, be out in the studio. Brian Eno and the engineer would be in the control room. And we would roll the tape. One, two, three, four. After we'd gotten to a point where we thought, this sounds cool, we would stop and we would listen back to what we had recorded. And then we would start again using the ideas that had been developed in the previous jam session. Same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. They made only small parts of songs on different tapes, putting them together, taking away what was no longer fresh and adding new fresh layers to come up with an interesting collage of sounds. Steady elements as well as syncopated elements, squeaks like a parrot, shouts of animals, sounds like an electronic pinball machine, Putting songs together in the studio during the recording process following conceptual and cybernetic ways of thinking. I remember after we recorded all the basic tracks, David's feeling was that these were very special tracks, very different and unusual, and therefore would require more time on his part to put together a cohesive lyric and vocal. I believe what he did was rent a car and go driving around the country listening to the radio. You have a little pencil on one side and a clipboard on the other. He was driving through the countryside and he could pull over and just write things down as they came. You may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile. And you may find yourself... He picked up voices from American radio preachers. As we try to take care of that splinter in the eye of our brother, all the time neglecting and forgetting about that tree that's growing in our... You have periods of happiness. But God nowhere promises happiness is to be a goal in life. He used newspaper headlines, quotes from books that he found inspiring, a recording of former slaves telling their stories. I said, I never had no shoes until I was 13 years old. He used phrases from a recording of John Dean's testimony for the Watergate trials. The fact that I was involved in obstruction of justice, the fact that I assisted another in perjured testimony, the fact that I made personal use of funds that were in my custody. Making those into collages of snippets of text and organize them into song-like patterns in a way that he found convincing enough so that he could actually sing them. David Byrne was never what you might see as a natural singer. To begin with, he had to force himself to sing. And the tension that creates is, of course, very interesting. 
And I think he saw something of the same tension in many preachers. So for the song uh, Once in a Lifetime, he used that tension and the persona of the preacher to put together that song. And you may find yourself living in a shotgun shack. And you may find yourself in another part of the world. And you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile. And you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, Both David Byrne and Brian Eno, as well as the other members of Talking Heads, were interested in a wide range of music. We had been listening to African music since college days. We would go up to Cambridge, Massachusetts and buy African record albums in a little shop, like one of those multicultural shops. And that's where we discovered Vela Kuti. One part of African music on which they focused is that it's polyrhythmic, it's layered rhythm that consists of very many small rhythmic elements that are relatively easy to play that add to each other. After we had cut a few basic tracks, everybody in the room knew that this was going to be something extraordinary. Talking Heads have a new album. It's called Remain in Light. Talking When Talking Heads put together a press package for the release of the album Remain in Light, uh, David Byrne and Brian Eno included a small bibliography of books they had read, two on African music and African culture, and two on the process of developing architectural plans and plans for new cities. And they added it to the package because they thought it, they might get more interesting questions from journalists. Frankly, my impression is that I may be the only one who has ever written about him who actually read all those four books. <laughs> It was too rock for black radio. It was too black for rock radio. It was too funky for pop radio. But somehow, people got it. I think it was a moment of liberation. Because from that moment on, Talking Heads would go on to make films. David Byrne went on to make music for ballet and for theater. And he would make theater himself. There was this very open range of artistic possibilities. Very, very wide open. These are very powerful works of art. This record was made almost 40 years ago, and by now, so many young people have incorporated it into their own sensibility of how to approach music. Not only is it brainy and sonically beautiful, but it's also really great to dance to. <laughs> That was Tina Weymouth of Talking Heads. You also heard her bandmate and husband, Chris France, and the author, Sitsa Steenstra. The tape of Brian Eno was from a lecture he gave in 1979. David Byrne declined to be interviewed, too busy, 
But you can hear a couple of conversations I have had with David Byrne over the years at our website, studio360.org. That story about Remain in Light was produced by Jenny Cataldo and BMP Audio. Remain in Light was recently chosen by the Library of Congress to be part of the National Recording Registry. And coming up... Having your accountant or your wife or husband tell you you're running out of money is a very stressful conversation. When the vicissitudes of everyday life become the stuff of riveting drama. Watching your kid go into the playground for the first time is can be quite stressful. Uh, so I think there's just a lot of drama in real life that gets skipped over a lot. Broadway playwright and Oscar-winning director Kenneth Lonergan on his total commitment to realism. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. I was in jail for a little while. You were what? I, I served a little time, I guess, down in Florida. It's just for, it's for bullshit. What? It's for bullshit. What did you do? I didn't do anything. Does it occur to you that maybe I was wrong? No. That's a scene from You Can Count On Me from 2000, a terrific film that turbocharged the careers of its stars, Laura Linney and Mark Ruffalo, and of its writer and director, Kenneth Lonergan. After that film, Lonergan wrote and directed the excellent but less well-known film, Margaret, and last year he won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay for Manchester by the Sea, which he also directed. But before... Kenneth Lonergan wrote achingly realistic dramas like that for the screen. He was writing them for the stage. Two of his plays from the 1990s and early aughts, This Is Our Youth and Lobby Hero, have been recently revived with big star-studded productions. And now another of his plays from the turn of the century called The Waverly Gallery is on Broadway. It is about a gallery owner named Gladys Green, who is played by the astonishing Elaine May. The play focuses on her descent into Alzheimer's, and especially how that affects her relationship with her grandson and housemate, played by Lucas Hedges. And it turns out that that grandson character and Kenneth Lonergan himself have almost everything in common. The whole play is based very closely on my family and my experience with my grandmother when I was in my 20s and uh, how everybody dealt with her later years. Including just even the detail, which you could have changed, uh, making yourself uh, an EPA speechwriter, which you were, uh, to my surprise. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I was doing at the time. And then then my grandmother's gallery was called the Waverly Gallery, and it was on the corner of Waverly and uh, McDougal and... Quite a lot of the play is, is drawn from real life. No, I, I remember when I lived in the East Village back in those days, walking past your grandmother's gallery. I now know. Yeah, a lot of, I've had heard that from quite a few people, actually, over the years. So the, the play, uh, Waverly Gallery, uh, first was produced off-Broadway, 2000. Mm-hmm. And in that production, Eileen Heckert, the late great actress, uh, played the main character. How was her Gladys, I guess the original Gladys, different from how Elaine May does it in this show? Pretty profoundly different. Uh, Eileen was a real roughneck in a way. She had a kind of gravelly voice, and she was very tough, had a tough vibe to her. But she uh, just came at it from a completely different angle. Elaine, who was also pretty tough, uh, there's a sort of a sweetness to the way she does the character and a gentleness that surprised me and, and I really, which I love. Right. She, she's, she plays it 
charming and upbeat. And, and by the way, Elaine May is just amazing. It's incredible to watch her work. She's a very, very methodical, brilliant actress. And this is a character who is both hard of hearing and increasingly demented. So the way she navigates and navigated in rehearsal through the logic of what was happening in the scene, she needs to know if the person talking to her is within reach, if they're turning away from her, why does she keep talking? If if she can't hear them, why does she say what she says? And not in any kind of a mystical, actory way, but really concrete uh, in order to put herself really in the situation and inside the character's head. If there are a way to... to amplify the word pedestrian into some form of, of genius, I would apply it to her. One so immediately buys her as this character. It's, it's, oh, a, yeah. it's, a, ma- it's a practically magical thing. Yes. Uh, you know, the goal is to believe that what you're doing on stage is real, mm-hmm. even though the situations, the circumstances are totally artificial. You're sent, you know what you're going to say, you know what your scene partner's mm-hmm. going to say. There's a, there are 800 people watching you. Right. They laugh in the middle. They go, ooh, when something happens, you're in a fake set, in a fake room, pretending to be real. So it's quite a lot of work to have a real interaction. And uh, there is a process, and it's fun to watch someone, a real master, explore it. A, a real master, because, of course, Elaine May was half of Nichols and May 50 and 60 years ago. Uh, great uh, comic team. And speaking of which, most people don't know, I don't think, that before you can count on me, you were basically a, a comedy writer. Your, your first real show business job was was co-writing an episode of, of Doug uh, on Nickelodeon. Uh, and you wrote the movies Analyze This and its sequel and The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. Why'd you decide to to get out of comedy early? Um, I was never in it exclusively. I like to write a lot of things. You know, I always like to say there are very few no-joke zones in life. There are certainly some. But daily life can be very funny, even if it's horrible. And uh, it always strikes me somewhat false if a representation of life has no humor in it. Um, Not always. There's some people who are able to do dramatic work with no humor in it and works very well. But, you know, if you take a look, most of your favorite dramatic writers also have very good senses of humor. So the Waverly Gallery isn't your only recent Broadway revival. It's the decade of Kenneth Lonergan uh, revivals. Uh, the last few years, the the theater industrial complex has decided to revive uh, this one from 15 or 20 years ago, as well as uh, This Is Our Youth, great play, well-produced, Lobby Hero last year. Why did they suddenly decide, hey, we can we, th- this guy's worth doing? Who knows? I mean, I think it helps a bit that I do movies and that the last movie I had had, had a pretty big public profile for me anyway. Won an Oscar. Won an Oscar. Won two Oscars. Not, not to be a modest. One of them. One of them was not for me. It was for Casey Affleck, so I take no credit But um, for that. But, um, you know, that gives that gives you more profile. Work tends to create work. Um, you just became an absolute name brand. Yeah, I became so. a name brand. Here I am. <laughs> um, and here is a clip from Manchester by the Sea. We happen to have Handy. Uh, Casey Affleck and his nephew, played by Lucas Hedges, are walking down the street, talking and arguing and, and then encountering another pedestrian. You're 16 I years get my old. license this year. doesn't matter. You're still a minor. You can't run a commercial vessel by yourself. Meanwhile, it's a big fucking expense, and I'm the one that's going to manage it, and I'm not going to be here. Who gives a fuck where you are? Patty, I swear to God, I'm going to knock your fucking block off. Great parenting. What? What'd you say? I said great parenting. Fuck you. Mind hey, your no, fucking no, business. Hey, you fucking asshole. Smashing the face. Smashing the face. Hey, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Smash your fucking face, you fucking asshole. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Thank you. Thank you. It's okay. Uncle Lee, are you fundamentally unsound? 
That was in uh, Manchester by the Sea, Casey Affleck and Lucas Hedges and playing this random nosy jerk. Excuse me. If you saw somebody telling his nephew who's going to knock his block off in the street, I think it would take some nerve to uh, to step in. It, it would. I wouldn't do it. And that was played by you. Yes. I, you, you do that Hitchcock thing. You put yourself in all your movies. <laughs> well, I get, he he was more modest. He put himself in movies in strict cameos. He never said a word, and he was usually just he was just a an extra who you noticed. Um, most ingeniously in a Lifeboat, where he couldn't appear, he appeared as in an advertisement in a newspaper, famously. Um, no, I've actually had, that's actually my smallest role in my three films that I've directed. I had real parts in the other two. Yeah, but I can see why you would have cast yourself. I mean, I'm seriously like, eh. You're sure, this. it's fun. Yeah, if it's a part that I can do, it's fun for me to do, and I'm the only one who wants to cast me. So, and your uh, writing and filmmaking is highly, uh, brilliantly, delightfully realistic. Uh, was that an aesthetic choice starting out or just how you did what you did? It was an aesthetic choice. It was also, you know, even though I like to write broader stuff and have written more comedic stuff, I certainly gravitate towards what I like to call ultra-naturalism, which because I, I really feel like it gets short shrift in a lot of films and theater. Talking to a doctor about anything serious is quite dramatic in a very unpleasant way. Having your accountant or <laughs> your wife or husband tell you you're running out of money is a very stressful conversation. Watching your kid go into the playground for the first time is can be quite stressful. Uh, so I think there's just a lot of drama in real life that gets skipped over a lot in in some films and, and, and theater and television. And, and in any case, whether it's skipped over or not, that's where I often like to go to find the... Uh, stories that I like to write about. Uh, as you're writing dialogue, do you, do you have rules? One rule that I have is if it sounds too colorful and interesting, it's probably not too good. I don't like to write dialogue that sounds good for its own sake or uh, have people speak in ways that they wouldn't otherwise speak. I try to be, I try to be guided by the way people really talk, and I'm very interested in the way people speak. And I try very hard to have each character have his own way of speaking, uh, that's not so easy to do since I'm only one person, but I try. And I need to have a really vivid idea of who the person is before I can write anything, really. And if I don't have a very vivid idea of who the person is, I don't know how they speak, and I have trouble imagining them doing anything. So I'll have to fish around for a, for a better idea of who the character is. Well, and in theater especially, there are many uh, serious and acclaimed writers who do work that is more self-conscious, stylized, Postmodern, meta. Uh, do you ever do you enjoy some of that work? Absolutely, I love. I like all kinds of theater, all kinds of films. There's a distinction between what you like to watch and what you can do. I love good action movies. I don't think I could write one. I like spy thrillers. I don't think I could write one. You know, there's just a lot I like that I can't do, um, or that I wouldn't do as well as somebody else. There is a lot of overlapping dialogue in your work, like in that Manchester by the Sea clip. We heard also in the Waverly Gallery. I, I I just like overlapping dialogue. It's a lot of fun to write. It's I love the way it sounds. Um, sometimes I feel like it can get to the point where it doesn't really mimic uh, real life enough. People tend to, when people are trying to talk at the same time, someone usually gains the floor and everyone else shuts up for a few minutes. But not always, especially families, I noticed, tend to keep talking over each other even though no one's listening. Mine certainly does. And uh, someone like Patty Chayefsky, extremely naturalistic writer, uh, a lot of his television writing is 
so naturalistic. You, you, Marty. Marty and all of his television plays and the wonderful play he wrote called Middle of the Night. I wanted him to move in with us. Listen, I was perfectly oh, willing. Oh, she resents me a great deal. Every time my father and I sit down for one of our little talks, she always finds some way of breaking in. She resents any woman my father likes. Oh, Mel, she's a lonely So my father's woman. going out with a woman, so what's so terrible about that? And as far as overlapping dialogue goes, you know, there are great masters of that in the old days, in the black and white studio days. Uh, Howard Hawks particularly had a whole technique for writing overlapping dialogue where he would, where the beginnings and ends of sentences would overlap, but the important information was in the middle. And uh, that's just great, like His Girl Friday does that a lot. Oh, I wish you'd well, stop when you came here five years ago, a little college girl from a school of journalism. I took a doll-faced hick. Well, it wouldn't take me if I hadn't been doll-faced. Oh, why should I? I thought it'd be a novelty to have a face around here, man, could look at but I was shuddering. Listen, Walter. Listen, I made a great reporter out of you, Hildy, but you won't be half as good on any other paper and you know it. We're a team. That's what we are. You need me and I need you and the paper needs you. Sold, American. Uh, does it beautifully, Rosalind Russell and Cary Grant. So it's not, I'm not the, not the first one to try it. And all dialogue is a bit stylized, even if it feels very natural. And you tend to notice the stylization a few years on. Kenneth Lonergan, uh, this has uh, been a great uh, pleasure and a privilege. Thank oh, you. Thank you very much. It's been really fun. Kenneth Lonergan's play, The Waverly Gallery, starring Elaine May, Lucas Hedges, and Joan Allen, is on Broadway now. And that's it for this episode. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is... Sandra Lopez-Monsalve. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. And this is a character who is both hard of hearing and increasingly demented. Thanks for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. They were bananas. She means the security system at Boston's Gardner Museum before it was hit by the biggest art heist ever. In terms of protocol, it was, I mean, you could drive a truck through it. You know, delivery guys with late night food runs would be buzzed into the museum. The co-host of Last Scene, a new podcast chronicling a mystery still unsolved 28 years later. It was a hot mess. Next time on Studio 360. 